What are you guys doing here? This is my stage. Are you guys taking my place? <gasps> well, it's Mother's Day, isn't it? And um, what would you like to say to your mom on Mother's Day, Summer? Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. What would you like to say, Noel? Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Collins? Happy Mother's Day. Very good. All right. You know, um, our moms work so hard, don't they? What is the hardest thing you think a mom has to do? Noel, what do you think the hardest thing a mom has to do is? Work. Work, yeah. What, like, can you think of some kind of work? Um. Cleaning the house? Yeah? Yes. Do you help clean the house? No. <gasps> oh. Summer, how about you? What, what's, uh, some, what do you think the hardest thing for mom is? Taking care of the kids. Now, do you have siblings? Do you have brothers, sisters? All right, how many? Two. Two. Are you the easiest one to take care of? Probably. Probably. I'm sure it is, right? And Collins, what do you think the hardest thing is? To get coffee. To get coffee? All right. Does your mom drink coffee? Yes. Yes. Lots of coffee? Oh, okay. Yeah, sometimes it's just, you know, because moms work so long, morning, day, and night, hard to get out of bed sometimes, right? Um, who makes your bed? Um, my mom. Your mom makes your bed. Do you know how to make your bed? Yeah. Yeah? Do you like doing it? Sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. Who makes your bed? I do. Really? All by yourself? Yes. Wow. Who makes your bed? Me. All by yourself? Yeah. Do you know that in my house, I don't make my bed. My wife makes my bed. Do you know why? Because she doesn't like the way I make it. So, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes, right? All right, listen. Uh, what do you think every mom needs? Noelle, what does every mom need? A vacation. A vacation. All right. Noelle. Did your mommy tell you to say that? No. Wow. All right. I like that. A vacation. Boy, she's happy. Collins, how about you? What does every mom need? Coffee. Coffee. Yeah. You're stuck on coffee, aren't you? All right. Tell me, do you drink coffee? No. No. Okay. All right. And then, Summer, what do you think every mom needs? The Bible. The Bible, right? Kind of like a guidebook, right? Direct your life. Okay. So, what I think should happen is mom should get her coffee with her Bible and go on a vacation. Yeah, that'd be nice. Now, if someday, Summer, you're going to be a mom, how many children would you like to have? Three. Three? Okay, all right. Noelle, how many? Three. Oh, three. Last service, it was 100. You come down to three. No? Or was it the other girl said 100? Oh, it wasn't you. All right, it was always three. Okay, sorry, my bad. All right? Now, Collins, obviously you're not a mom, but if you're a dad someday, how many kids would you like to have? Two billion. Two billion. All right. Now you're being silly. I love that. Okay, well, listen, I have a paycheck for you guys. So you take this card and you go to Lydia's. You can have anything you want, okay? Anything you want. Oops, sorry, I'll pick it up. Anything you want, all right? Anything you want. 
even coffee. Let's give it up for them. Thank you, guys. Good job. Thank you. Well, happy Mother's Day, those of you who are moms. And I guess I should throw the question back to you. What is it that every mom needs? In fact, let me broaden it out, right? And let me ask, what is it that every woman needs? And guys, before you try to answer that question, which is a dangerous thing for you as men to do or for me, let's see what a woman says. Let's look at Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, I am having, anybody besides me just struggle with allergies? It's just like the worst right now. So I have my trusty bottle of water in case my throat acts up. Samuel chapter 1. Here we go. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. That's quite an introduction, isn't it? Five generations. He had two wives. How many of you already know we're in trouble? <laughs> All right. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his, own, from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Why? Because he loved her. Now, how many of you think we're in trouble? Rivalry, jealousy, right? And the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. In the Hebrew, the word for irritate there can also mean like roaring anger, roaring anger. How many of you women have ever felt roaring anger? But that's all you felt it. Nothing happened after that, okay? This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her. Uh, till she wept and would not eat. So year after year after year of irritation. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Trouble. Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. It's pretty important. We'll find out later on why. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorposts of the Lord's house. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give to him the Lord for all the days of his life. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. That was called a Nazarite vow. It meant that his hair would never be cut, right? He would never taste strong drink like alcohol, and he could not go near and touch the dead. He was totally devoted completely to God. Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. 
Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went her way, ate something, and her face, <clears throat> excuse me, was no longer downcast. So what is it that Hannah needs? Well, you say it's pretty obvious she wanted a son. That's like her great need. Well, that's true, but there's even more beyond that. What she really needs is to be valued as a person, seen as worthy in and of herself, whether she can have a child or not. In writing on the women of the Bible, Carolyn uh, Custer Justice says that in those days, the days of Hannah, women found their worth and their value and were considered worthy of value if they could produce children, and especially higher worth and value if you produced a male heir. Now, back in those days, the more children you had, the more power, the more wealth you had because they were an agrarian culture. It meant more hands to till the fields and care for the animals. And they all lived in clans in those days. And so if in your clan there were many women who were having many children, it made you kind of invincible when you were attacked by your enemies because the more of you, the more fighting that can take place, the more protection, the stronger you become. So in that sense, women are almost seen as saviors, held up as saviors, because they added to the population. They brought forth the children. Not only that, but there's no social security system back in those days. There is no one really to look after you when you get sick and old, and so it depended oftentimes on the sons to look after uh, their mothers in old age. So if you don't have any children, you especially don't have a, a son, it's really a difficult thing. It's very challenging. It's very hard on you. And you're looked at as less than. So Elkanah does what, unfortunately, many men try to do. He decides to solve Hannah's problem his way. If you study the story carefully, you discover that what he's really trying to do is solve the problem that he thinks exists for him. I need a male heir. I've got a strong family, five generations. She's supposed to produce the sixth generation. She's not. What am I going to do about this? So it's as much about him as it is about her, which tells you a little bit about him and the culture they lived in in those days. So he comes up with a solution. He finds a second wife. I have an imagination like you do. I try to imagine him coming home one day and saying, Honey, no longer have to worry about having kids. Let me introduce you to your sister wife, Penina. Give it up for Penina today. I don't think that went over too well, do you? And look, Hannah, listen. Since you don't have to worry about kids anymore, and she's quite fertile, we're going to have a whole slew of kids, and you can help take care of them. <clears throat> I don't think that went over too well. Do you, ladies? No. All right? Um, and then Penina. i, I got to tell you, I feel a little bit for this woman. All right? Couldn't be easy to be her. Because it's obvious that he loves Hannah more than he loves Penina. She's a means to an end. And while there's no excuse for her doing it, I can, I can see why. She, she speaks and treats Hannah the way she does. Because in a sense, she's trying to push Hannah out of the picture. So imagine her saying things like this to Hannah. He may love you more, but at least... I'm not a disappointment. 
at least my womb works. I wonder what's wrong with you that God won't give you a child. Can you imagine hearing that day after day, week, month, year after year after year? You see, Elkanah was very insensitive to the real problem that was at hand. And that's just something, as men, we struggle with in general. Our tendency are to be fixers, whatever the issue might be. How can we fix it? And let's be honest, a lot of times, and this is true in my life as guys, we're not really trying to fix her problem. We're trying to fix our problem because if she has a problem, that means we have a problem, right? So how do I fix this for myself? And we go right away to that rather than understanding and showing compassion and care and concern. A couple of years ago, there was a video that was kind of viral. It went around. It's been long enough that I want to show it again. It's, it's a humorous take on this whole issue of male, female, guys, you know, wanting to fix it, not taking time to understand. Watch this with me, will you? It's just there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me, and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like... There's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just... Don't! How many of you ladies can relate to that a little bit? Not being understood, right? I don't, I'm not showing that to make fun of women as much as I'm showing it to show how insensitive we can be as men. Because we want to fix it. And you know, some things can't be fixed. Hannah's situation can't be fixed without a miracle. And there are certain things that women face in the culture, unlike men face, that oftentimes it's like that nail. How do you get removed? How do you live past it? Think of the pressure women face these days. Think about the pressure, for instance, regarding looks and attractiveness that women face. And what do you compare it to? You compare it to some 22-year-old model that's been airbrushed, right? And that's what you're supposed to look like. Look like her, wear her clothes, have her figure. And the older you get, I mean, how do you compete with that? And that's what's being held up, at least psychologically, all the time in the media. This is what men want. This is what a successful woman looks like. Talk about a nail that you cannot get out. And how do you fix that? Of course, you know, people come up with ways to fix it, from surgery to procedures to all kinds of things. I got to do all that in order to be accepted and loved and valued? Or how about the pressure 
to have a career and, and to show your independence and be as successful as you know, the men in the world, so to speak, and, and to compete against them? Or how about the pressure if you're single to be married or if you're married to have kids or if you have kids to have kids who are successful, who get straight A's, go to the right schools, you know, first chair in the orchestra, or uh, they make the starting team, and on and on that pressure goes. Or how about the pressure to have the sex drive of a man? Or how about the pressure to climb the corporate ladder by, by uh, compromising your morality or your ethics? There's a lot of pressure out there. We've seen it. We've heard all about it in these recent months. What women want is to be valued for who they are. Whether you're a mother, a wife, a daughter, whether you're single, it doesn't matter. Young or old, it does not matter. And Hannah's saying, who's going to value me? Nobody's listening to me. Husband's not listening to me. Penina's not listening to me. My culture's not listening to me. So I think Hannah had had enough listening to the wrong messages. And so she does something rather profound. In this passage of Scripture, she, she kind of stands up and says, I've, I've had it. I'm not going to go through this anymore. Now, it could all have been prevented if Elkanah had taken the time to just value his wife and care for her. And so sometimes what we learn from a passage of Scripture is not so much what is said or done, but what is not said or what is not done. Now, let's look at this passage of Scripture, and I thought to myself, poor Hannah, if Elkanah had only learned to practice what I want to call the ministry of listening or paying attention to his wife's truest need. So I want us to look at this, whether a male or female today, but specifically I want to apply this to all the men in the room. As we think about the women in our lives, could we begin to earnestly practice the ministry of listening? You say, well, what is that? What is the ministry of listening? Well, I want to draw from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my favorite theologian, his book Life Together, and from an article by Janet Dunn in Discipleship Journal, where they describe, it's put into principles by the author, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Pastor Mathis, all right? Four principles for listening. Here's the first principle. Good listening requires patience. I like only the guys to say this with me. Ready? One, two, three. Good listening requires patience. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? But listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says he says that we should avoid a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. How many of you men, I know women struggle with this too, but how many of you men with me would say that's a challenge? It's a challenge for me. I already want to jump ahead to the answer or to my defense or whatever it is in any situation. This, he says, is an impatient, inattentive listening that is only waiting for a chance to speak. As Janet Dunn laments, unfortunately, many of us are too preoccupied with ourselves when we listen. Isn't that Alcana? He's preoccupied with himself. How do I get a male heir out of this whole situation? Instead of concentrating on what is being said, we're busy either deciding what to say in response or mentally rejecting the other person's point of view, which takes us to the second principle. Good listening is an act of love. Good listening is an act of love. I want to read to you what goes on, he says. He says, half-hearted listening despises the other person 
and it's only wanting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. What does he mean by that? When I only half listen, when I want to get my words in, especially in a conflict, I want, I want to prove you wrong, prove myself right, I treat you like you're non-persona. I, I treat you like you don't exist. There's no love in that. There's no love in that. Bonhoeffer writes, just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for someone else is learning to listen to them. That's pretty profound, isn't it? I have to work on this in my life. I have to. Just as I show my love to God by listening to his word, taking it in, contemplating what he is saying, if I really love my wife, my daughter, if I really love others, I'll listen to them. It's a sign of love and respect. Third principle, good listening asks perceptive questions. Doesn't interrogate, it's not a lawyer with a witness on the stand, but asks perceptive questions. Just listen to what the scriptures say. It is a fool who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Ouch. Proverbs 18.2. And thus gives an answer before he hears. Proverbs 18.13. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, says Proverbs 20, verse 5. But a man of understanding will draw it out. So as men, thinking about the women in our life, asking, asking open-ended, leading, comfortable questions like, I want, to hear what you, I want to hear how you feel. I want to hear what you're thinking. I want to hear your dreams. I want to hear your fears. I want to hear your frustrations. And then empathically listening. That is a wonderful gift. And when a woman feels listened to, she feels secure. Am I right, ladies? Would you give an amen if that's true? Amen. You feel very secure when someone values you and wants to listen to you. And that takes us finally to our last principle. Good listening is ministry. Good listening is ministry. Bonhoeffer says, listening, to, listening can be a greater service than speaking. Janet Dunn says, good listening often diffuses the emotions that are part of a problem being discussed. Sometimes releasing these emotions is all that is needed to solve the problem. The speaker may neither want nor expect us to say anything in response. Put more emphasis on affirmation than on answers. Many times God simply wants to use me as a channel of his affirming love as I listen with compassion and understanding, says Dunn. Echoes Bonhoeffer Often a person can be helped merely by having someone who will listen to him or her seriously. So if you haven't figured out what to give for Mother's Day, the greatest gift you could give to your mom, to your wife, to your daughter, to your girlfriend, the greatest gift you can give to women in your life is the ministry of listening. Would you women like that? Let me hear a hearty amen if so. Amen. Yeah, to be listened. So there you go. Taking the time to listen. Well, like I said, Hannah was tired of listening to all the griping, all the complaining, all the put-downs, all the expectations. So in verse 9, what does she do? She stood up. She stood up. Something's about to happen. Where's she going to go? What's she going to do? She goes to the tabernacle. And she does two profound things, ladies, and all of us men can learn from this as well. Instead of waiting around for her husband, instead of waiting around for the culture changes at mine, she goes to God, and number one, she leans into the doctrine, the sovereignty, the greatness of God. 
Not only does she lean into God, but she also pours out her heart to God. And she empties everything out there. It's messy. It's ugly. But she empties out all the feelings, all the hurt, all the pain in her life before God himself. And I'm so thankful she does. She's a picture to me of some other characters in the Bible, like Joseph. You know, Joseph went through some really hard times. Beaten by his brother, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, sent to jail. Went through some really difficult times in his life. But absent in the account of Joseph is any accusation against God, any disbelief in, against God, any rejection of God. Or Job. Talk about a guy who lays it out in front of God. Man, Joseph, uh, Job lays it all out. He's upset. He's not happy about his situation. And what he went through, I, don't, I can't imagine all that he went through. Lost everything, including his health, down to skin and bones. But he never rejects God. He never denies God. There's an immovable conviction and belief that God is. And Hannah has that. She never once curses God. She never once rejects God. She never once blames him. And if you've ever done that, please understand, God is forgiving. God can take it. But she just, she just leans into God. Can you lean into God today, ladies? Guys, can you lean into God? Even though you may not understand why you've got that nail in your life, why you've got that hardship, can you say, God, I know you're there. I know you're in control. I'm leaning into you. I'm pouring it out in front of you. I'm going to trust you. And then there's a change in Hannah's life. And I want you to see the change. All her life she wanted a son for her sake because that son would give her value. Notice all of a sudden she says to God, God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Now I'm going to ask you, which is harder? To want a child or to get a child and then lose that child? She says, I will give you back that child. He will be a Nazarite for his whole life. Understand the significance of what she's saying. That means economically he'll never be able to take care of me. It means after he's weaned and I take him to the tabernacle, I'll probably never see him again. Never get an email, never get a text, never get a phone call, never get a Mother's Day card. Because he won't be mine anymore. He's yours. He has to be fully devoted to you for the rest of his life. I'll be back to what I was before I had him. But it's okay. What happened? What happened? Why that mind shift in Hannah? I think there's a reason for the mind shift. I think Hannah's come to terms with the idolatry of her culture. The idolatry, this mindset that I have to be a certain way or have a certain thing in order to be accepted and valued. There are all kinds of definitions for uh, what an idol is. My favorite is Tim Keller's. I think yeah, he just says it in a way that's very modern, very appropriate. He says, an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. There are a lot of things we commit idolatry with that in and of themselves, they're, they're good things. Money's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing. Your health is a good thing, but it can become a bad thing. Sex is a good thing, as we've learned in the series on intimacy, but it can become and be used in a bad and wrong way. He says an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes the very core of your life because I had that. I have honor, I have worth, I have meaning, I have purpose. That gives this to me. Now that's what I cling to. 
He says, every culture puts certain things in front of people, things that aren't God, and says, you have to have that or you're nothing. You have to have beauty or you're nothing. You have to have a career or you're nothing. You have to have kids or you're nothing. You have to have successful kids or you're nothing. You have to have money or you're nothing. You have to do this or that or you're nothing. You have to have that or you're nothing. You have to have that or you're a disgrace. You have to have that or you don't have self. You have to have that. Whatever that is can quickly replace God as we obsess, and I add this, as we obsess getting it, then we obsess keeping it, and then we obsess with the fear of losing it because my whole being's wrapped around it. For Hannah, it was having a son. meant everything to her. But all of a sudden, what happens is she pulls that out and says, you know what? My worth and value is not going to come from having a child my worth and value is by leaning into you, God. My worth and my value comes from you, and I'm settling it today. Once and for all, if you give me a son, I'm giving him back. But notice that she leaves. She leaves having eaten, was satisfied, and her countenance no longer fallen down. But now she's at peace because she has God where he belongs, at the center, at the center. Ladies, is God at the center of your life? Guys, is God at the center of your life? How are we helping our women, the ladies in our life, as men, how are we helping them understand that what matters is God at the center of their lives? Do we value that in them? Do we hold that up for them so it's something they long for and grow into? Do we affirm it when we see it in their lives? Listen, God does not ask you and me to do something he's not willing to do himself. That's what's beautiful about God. As I meditated on this passage this week, I began to see a wonderful picture of God in this passage of Scripture. You know, if you were to ask me, what, what was at the center of God's life? I would say to you, his son. Read John chapter 5, John 15, John 17. Passages where Jesus describes his relationship to his father. It's it's indescribable. It's, it's so strong, the love between father and son. Jesus says in John 5, I know that my father has always loved me. I only do what my father tells me to do. I know my father loves me. My father, he and I, we're one. We're one. And yet God looks at you and me out here in the perimeter, lost in our sins and our rebellion and our ugliness, and he says, you know what? I love them too. So I'm taking you out of the middle, so to speak, and I'm putting you on a cross so I can put Dale or Marsha, whoever you are, in the middle. Because my love is all about them. Our creation, how do we bring them back into oneness? Son, you go, become like one of them. Live, be rejected, be crucified. So you can become them and they can become you. See what God does? God says, I want, I want to be the center of your life, just like I made you the center, so to speak, of my life. Hannah says, it's no longer about me and a son. It's really about me and my relationship to you, O oh God. If I have you, I have worth, I have value, I have everything I need. Is that true for you today? Would you bow your heads with me for just a few moments? I just want you to ask God as you're here today, if there are any idols in your life, is there anything good that's become ultimate? Ladies, how about you? Have you allowed the pressure of this culture, 
of men or even of other women, to make you feel like you have no worth or value unless you look a certain way, act a certain way, drive a certain vehicle, live in a certain home, have a certain kind of career? Is it all dependent on those things? Or whether you have those things or not, do you draw your worth and value from a God who died for your love? You matter so much to him. Lord, that's a question we all need to ask ourselves, whether we are male or female. doesn't matter. Lord, I don't, I don't think we know how much pressure we live under to conform to the gods of this culture. We're all lost. We're trying to find ourselves in the wrong places in all the wrong ways. And it's wearying, Lord. It's draining. It just breeds anxiety. I pray for those who can realize that, Lord, this weekend. Would you give them the capacity to turn over the treadmill to you, to abandon the things, Lord, they've been looking to for worth, value, and affirmation to accept the blood of Christ, who you are, what you've done for them. And God, I pray that in each other's lives, especially as men, we relate to the women in our lives, God, would you please help us to not reinforce the wrong messages? But the right messages. And we would do this for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.